Our sermon today will not be easy. Um, we're going to look at some things in the Bible that are uh, violent and gross. But we will end with hope. So buckle your emotional seatbelts. This message is part two of the See the Scripture series, where we go from Genesis to Revelation and look for word pictures God has written in the text to show us something we can see so that we can see with our mind's eye the words written on these pages. Recently, we finished our study of Jonah and began the See the Scriptures series by looking at the repeated biblical image of the phrase vine and fig tree or every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And we saw that that phrase tells us about the kingdom of God growing throughout the whole earth. So you got vines, you got fig, tree, fig trees, it kind of sounds like a garden. Kind of sounds like the Garden of Eden's influence and manifestation covering the earth. It's like that awful Sherwin-Williams paint advertisement that I think makes the environmentalists go crazy. Have you ever seen it on their trucks? It says like SWP, Sherwin-Williams paints, and it's got a picture of a big can of paint poured out on something round. What's the something round? Their, their tagline is, cover the earth. That sounds like an environmental disaster. So we won't see that happen, and God bless their business, and I'm sure they make good paint. Um, but the gospel and the kingdom of God will fill the earth, and everyone will be under his and her own vine and fig tree, and it's a sign of the increasing peace, of the increasing government of Christ, and Christians inviting outsiders to come and share with them under their own vine and fig tree, sharing fellowship and intimate communion with Christ himself. But today we're going to talk about a more difficult subject. Our title is A Tale of Two Curses. This is See the Scripture series, part two. Okay. How many of us, I'm looking at Joan Bradbury because we do this. How many of us have watched a movie about good guys fighting bad guys and we can still remember that scene in the movie where, well, all the good guys are fighting all the bad guys and the main character, the good guy, looks across the movie set and sees the bad guy and they lock eyes and they find their way to each other and they duel. And for the whole movie, we've been building up to this fight, learning exactly how bad that bad guy is. He's merciless, he's murderous, he's lawless, he's deserving of judgment. And now, after a one-on-one -on -one duel, the bad guy meets a terrible, iconic end, dying in a way that makes you wince. Because you think, ooh, that was horrible. And deep down, you know that while everyone dies, the bad guy in that movie was such an unapologetically wicked evil man that he deserved to die in a worse way than the good guys. And he got what was coming to him. Well, as movies often mirror real life, so this idea of the bad guy dying a horrible death mirrors what we find in the Bible. In the Bible, there are about three really 
really bad things that could happen to you, which would make everyone around think, ooh, he was cursed by God. Now, what were those three things? Ah, we got one. The first one, we'll start, we'll get right to that. That's second. The first one is in Genesis. Call it out if you know it. What? Ground, a little farther down. It's the curse of an ignoble death. Genesis chapter 3. Elijah Bradbury? Counting on you, buddy. Come through for me. No? The fall? Death, the first animal, slaughter. God promised somebody in that scene that he was going to die a terrible death. What's the first curse in the Bible? It's on Satan. It's on the serpent. And God tells him he's going to die a terrible death. Crush his head. He's going to have his head crushed by a man's heel. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Quote, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So you got a man, got a serpent. It's a venomous serpent. The serpent is going to bruise the man's heel. Okay, let's say you're not wearing your rattlesnake-proof western boots. Let's say you're wearing some little, whatever they call these things. All right, venomous snake bites my heel. I might get a bruise, but that's not the problem. The problem is the venom. What's going to happen to me? I'm going to die. There's a snake. It's got a head. It's about yay big. It's slithered on the ground. I stomp on it which is how I recently injured my foot and it's still recovering. Not stepping on a snake. I was stepping on a stick and it didn't break. I stepped on it too hard. But, um, but the snake's head would be rather disgustingly crushed. The bones would crunch and all of the fluids in the head would squirt and squish. Quite nasty. Quite nasty. If, if you've ever taken the life of a vermin-type animal or something in that way, it's, it's really quite gross. So God cursed that serpent by telling him how he was going to die. He was going to be on the ground, and one sacred heel was going to come down on his head and crush it. This theme of head crushing is seen again and again in the Bible. And it's not just Satan who has his head crushed. Many of the children of Satan meet the same fate and die this ignoble death. But... We can't talk anymore about Satan's head being crushed today because that's going to be another message in the See the Scripture series, approximately part seven or so. The second one, worms. Worms what? Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. This one's nasty. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Jesus quotes this in a more familiar passage, Mark 9, 48, where he talks about being thrown into hell, which he calls an unquenchable fire where those who sin go. He says, It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Quote, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
So we have this second great curse in the Bible, to have your body left out on the ground to be eaten by worms instead of being properly buried. Eaten by worms. Another way to say that, uh, it's found like two or three times in Isaiah and at least once in the gospel, is to be eaten by moths. Uh, the house I once lived in was infested with moths, and you might think, oh, moths, they're just like smaller, less colorful butterflies. Not so. So they lay their little eggs, and those eggs become pupae or larvae or whatever. Another name for that is maggots. So I had in my house, in all of the flour, all of the sugar, this is not a current house, this is the house where I once lived, um, in all of the cereal, in I don't know how, but even in sealed containers of Tupperware, they somehow got in through that, and I would find the little maggots like growing in the food. And for weeks and weeks, I would go around the house, and every time I saw a moth, I would run after it and clap it in my hands and say, ha ha, one less moth. I eventually got all rid of all the moths in the house, and I threw away most of the food. It was pretty gross. Um, so moths start out as little maggots. Speaking of maggots, I used to go fishing with my dad. When you catch a fish, you don't eat the whole fish. You eat the fillets and maybe the cheeks, and you throw away the bones, the fins, the head, and the guts. And uh, we used to do one of two things with the guts. After we caught fish, we would take it far out on the tidal flats and leave them and, and run back. And, if, and sometimes we would get back up to the house in time before the eagles swooped down and started fighting over them. It was kind of dramatic and cool. And the rest of the time, we buried them. We would bury them in, uh, that was the backyard. So we had this nice green lawn. Real short grass, didn't grow very well. Always cloudy and rainy up there. And, and uh, and it was like green, 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 and this bright, or, or dark green clump of really healthy looking grass that grew three times as tall and three times as fast as the whole rest of the lawn. Green, green, green grass. Big, green, tall clump that you couldn't mow fast enough, and so on. And one time I was digging in the yard as a boy, and I accidentally dug up something that I didn't realize had been buried there not many days before, and it was some fish guts. And as I peeled back the sod and the dirt, there was like this, well, first of all, the the uh, raucous odor, like, punched me in the face. It was very strong. And, and there was this writhing mass of maggots there, living happily at home in my yard. In the Bible, I, I put this sod back down, and I hope they died. In the Bible, some of the worst offenders are not buried honorably in a grave, but their bodies are disgraced and left out on the ground and they are eaten by worms, or moths, or maggots. No one wanted to give them the honor of a proper burial. And this is a sign of being cursed by God. We saw it in the book of Acts, when Herod, who was one of several in the Herodian dynasty, who went by the name of Herod, which basically means president, or king, or leader, one of the Herods was giving a speech in Acts chapter 12. You guys remember what happened? I think Josephus or somebody records about it, and he like, he, it says in the Bible he put on his royal robes, and in this extra-biblical source, I think it says he had like gold thread, like gold, gold thread, like we're not talking like some gold teeth, we're talking like he was like wearing gold, like, so when the sun shone on his garments, he kind of looked like the sun, like all gilded and glowing and reflecting the sunlight, says that source. So, uh, 
the people started praising him and worshiping him while he was giving a speech, shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately, it says in Acts 12, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Have you ever read over that like super fast? And like eaten by worms and breathed his last. All right, chapter 13. So, so, so he probably breathed his last and then he was probably eaten by worms. He, he was probably left out like due to unpopularity or something like that. Like, like God made sure that he had this sign upon him after his passing that was most disgraceful and ignoble. To be eaten by worms in the Bible is a despicable end. So we skipped over getting your head crushed. We hit getting eaten by worms or being moth-eaten. Maggots. We have one more ignoble death, one more curse. Dogs, to get eaten by dogs. I'm lumping that in with uh, to get eaten by worms, to get eaten by lo- dogs because your body is left out like as refuse on the ground and, and you're, you're eaten instead of buried properly. We'll lump that together. Who knows it? Jezebel. Jezebel, yeah, that was that one. What's the other really, really disgraceful death you could die in the Bible? To be, oh yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. Moses writes, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. And that's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. You remember uh, one of David's sons, uh, was, you know, he was riding through the woods and without getting too graphic, you know, he was, he was hanged, right? Uh, and the Lord's curse was upon him for his deeds. Um, and it's various other places as well. Um, Moses continues, you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. That was like a super bad, disgraceful end. In the book of Joshua, Uh, Do you remember Joshua? Uh, They had just made a treaty with the Gibeonites, I think, right? And then five kings of the Amorites gang up on Joshua and the Israelites. They're like, we're going to get this guy before before he gets us. And they gang up on him and they come out to fight. and, And they fight all day. And in the end, the kings are defeated. And he goes back after the enemy army is destroyed. And the people who were seeking to destroy all of, the, all of the people of God on the whole planet in one battle. And he takes those five kings and he hangs them on five trees. It was a sign that the Lord, that the Lord had turned their curse back on them. Very disturbing. Buried under a pile of stones. That counts under head crushing. We'll get there, Hmm. I think. So these are great, greatly disgraceful deaths. And in a culture where disgrace or honor are everything to you, what could have been worse than being cursed in this way? 
So today, we're going to look at two people in the New Testament who were cursed by hanging on a tree. Judas and Jesus. In Psalm 41, the prophet David foretells the betrayal of Jesus by Judas when he wrote, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Lifted up his heel against me. Uh, Leah, you've spent some time uh, in Cambodia. You used to tell me, like, oh, we can't, you know, it's very, very impolite. Like, it's, it's like the worst insult to, like, show somebody the bottom of your foot. Why would that be? What? Did somebody say, because in the ancient world, garbage and even human refuse was dumped into the streets and trampled underfoot, so everybody who walked, whether you're wearing sandals or, or you're barefoot, your feet are super nasty, like just from going for a walk, and to wash somebody's feet is like the job of the lowest of the servants, and your feet literally have waste. Your feet have poop on them, often, like animal and human. That's correct. Um, so to lift up your foot against somebody is kind of like the saying in English that's a little bit more, I'll uh, soften it a little, it's kind of like eat poop. You know, it, you know, when it's said, they use a curse word, but, um, but it's like that level of insult. So the prophet David uh, foretells Judas and his betrayal of the Lord Christ when he says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And in John chapter 13, we read that Jesus was in communion with his disciples, eating their last supper together before Jesus was betrayed and condemned and crucified. It says, Jesus handed Judas a piece of bread. And when Judas took the bread, it says, Satan entered him. And you know the rest of the story. Just like back in Genesis, when Joseph's brothers, when Joseph's own brothers sold him for 30 pieces of silver, so Judas went to the chief priests in order to betray him, Jesus, to them. They agreed on the price to sell Jesus in their hand, into their hands, 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus, having been betrayed by one of the 12, was then found praying in the garden of Gethsemane with the rest of his disciples. But Judas became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He came to the garden by night, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Jesus was taken with them, but his disciples fled. Through the night, they held trial and accused him and mocked him and spat on him and punched him and pulled out his beard, hair by hair. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. 
and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Then think ahead to Acts chapter one, verse 18. We see what happened to Judas' body after he died. It says, and it's a little gross, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. So perhaps he was left on the tree while there was swelling in the belly. And, uh, and upon falling or being cut down or whatever, um, his, his bowels gushed out and he was eaten by worms. So Judas received the curse of hanging on the tree and the sign of condemnation by God. His body was disgraced after death and he burst open and was eaten by worms. Guts and maggots. So the big question before us as you can imagine, let's say me standing on trial and all of us waiting our turn to stand on trial before God is what makes me better than Judas? I bet you that's a question like one or two people tops in here have asked themselves. That's not a usual question we would ask of ourselves unless you've done something really, really bad. But seriously, ask yourself that. Biblically speaking, what makes you better than Judas? Judas was one of the disciples. He was a false disciple, but he, did, he probably still did more good works than I have done. Think about that. He probably spent more time evangelizing than I have. He probably prayed for miracles and saw them happen. I don't know, I'm speculating. You know, Jesus said people would come to him and say like, Lord, Lord, we did miracles in your name. They probably did, and then he said, go away from me, I never knew you. So there is such a thing as a false disciple, one who will fall away, one who was never of us. Though he was a wolf in sheep's clothing, God still let him mingle with the flock for a while. But seriously, are you better than Judas? The reason we haven't asked ourselves that question is because we think maybe Judas was the ultimate bad guy, the ultimate villain. He probably deserved a worse death than anyone else, yeah. And he did get what was coming to him. But this idea that God should not be so angry with me comes from a deeply cherished way that we break the second commandment. What's the first commandment? You shall. Have no other gods before me. What's the second commandment? You shall. Have no graven image, no carved image. Don't make for yourself an idol. Don't make it look like anything, any person or anything in heaven or on earth or anywhere. No animal, right? So, in the ancient world, people had no trouble believing that the gods were angry at them, like all the time, because they had all these idols and they broke the second commandment in this way. They made all these graven image, all these idols, and they made them in their own image. And so naturally, their idols' personalities were fickle, 
demonic and easily angered. And one day they were mad at you and one day they were pleased and they were unpredictable. Sounds just a little like me, unfortunately. I mean, all of us can relate, some, yeah. So, so therefore it was basically impossible to please all the gods all the time. So when Jonah went to preach to the Ninevites and, uh, uh, and they immediately cried out under the, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they said, we've angered the God, like repent. Like that was the Holy Spirit's doing, but it was nothing foreign to their mindset that they've angered a God. It just happened to be the God and they just happened to truly repent and turn to him and be saved, that generation, praise God. But what about our generation? Raise your hand if you haven't been offended at a hellfire and brimstone gospel presentation. Anybody. I have. It's because I, like you, deeply cherish this way. Put that hand down. <laughs> this, uh, just teasing. Um, this way, um, this, there's this way that we break the second commandment today. Um, we remake the condemnation that we bring upon ourselves for remaking God in our image. This time, it's comparing our idea of being good to his ways, his holiness, his laws, is a deserved condemnation. To lower the creator and to recreate him after our own image is a kind of eternal treason. We may easily pursue health, happiness, and trying to live my best life and be ignorant of the costly ways I'm breaking the Ten Commandments. But my ignorance does not excuse me. The Bible says that if I'm ignorant, it's actually because of my own hardness of heart, Romans 1. And God doesn't look on the outward appearance, he looks at the heart. So if I can have this sense that I shouldn't go to hell, nobody should go to hell, hell is too bad and we're not that bad. We have broken the second commandment by remaking God in our own image and we've lowered his holy, holy, holiness to like about as good as we get, but really about as average as we get. And then we call that good. And then we say, therefore his condemnation of me is unjust. Don't we think that way? How many of us have had a hard time wrapping our minds around the judgment of God? Most cultures in the world don't have a hard time with the judgment of God, but we do and this is why. God doesn't look on the outward appearance, he looks at my heart. On the outside, you are clean and sharp and you measure up by most anyone's standards. But the problem is that your ways are not God's ways. And when weighed in the scales of justice, you will be found wanting. Deep in our spirits, we have this treasured belief that I'm a good person and that I haven't done anything deserving of the death penalty or hell. It sounds a lot like the rich young ruler who claimed that he had kept all 10 commandments since he was a boy, except for the 10th one, of course, which says roughly, you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his job, or his friends, or his car, or his reputation, I'm adding in, or anything that is your neighbor's. 
Raise your hand if you haven't coveted yet today. We claim that we deserve to be judged by our actions. And God does judge for actions, but he does not look only at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. The problem is that we are going to be judged for our motives and our thoughts and by what we wish we could do. And by that standard, which is a holy standard, all of us fall short of the glory of God. We have all together become wicked and worthless. Worthless in the Bible kind of means that we are already headed for judgment. There is no one righteous, not even one. Well, there is one. Jesus. We talked about Judas hanged on a tree for his own sin, his body eaten by worms. And now we turn our attention to Jesus, the righteous one of heaven, crucified or hanged on a wooden cross, hanged on a tree. Not for his own sin, but for mine and yours. For our sake, he came down from heaven, took on a body like ours, was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was crucified, buried in the tomb with the rich, and resurrected. He ascended to his throne, and from there he draws all men to himself. And he tore the veil in the temple that separated the people from the presence and holiness of God. And the immediate result was that God's holiness burst out and covered us. We were sinners, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Therefore, there is now not very much condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, my bad. Therefore, Romans chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, who is going to condemn us? The person I thought was my friend, my mom or my dad, my my kids when they accuse me of all my failures, Satan. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he looked like a man because he was a man like me. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of God's laws might be fulfilled in us. You get it. 
I sin, but Jesus gets condemned. That makes me cry. I love that. He is righteous, and I'm clothed, completely covered in his righteousness. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen, treasured possessions, his people, his inheritance? It is God who has justified. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Like, God died. Is there a better sacrifice? Like, actually, that great of a sacrifice was needed. But because there is none greater, no greater sacrifice could be. Therefore, there is no condemnation. There's none left. More than that, he was raised. He is at the right hand of God, and he is indeed interceding for us. What does interceding mean? You have to yell it. This is such a white church. Interceding means praying, right? But it's that kind of praying where you go to bat for someone else. It's that kind of praying where you stand in the gap for somebody else. And we do that for one another. And sometimes we're like crying or in anguish or like really worked up or something. Sometimes you get awakened on your bed at night and you think of like Brother Sam. Hopefully you do this for me. You're not that bad. It's just sometimes I pray for you guys. Um, you know, and you think of somebody, and it was God that made you think of that person, and he gave you this clear thought, I have to pray for that person right now. Like, this regularly happens with you guys, so. Do that for me. Don't go back to sleep. I need it. I'm probably going through something horrible, probably tempting with some awful sin or something. So, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He is always at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of this Christ? Shall Satan, or death, or suffering? Or mistakes? Or disgrace? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For we are sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers and principalities, nor height, nor depth, nor distance, or time, or space, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is manifested in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, like Judas, Jesus was cursed by hanging on a tree. 
Judas was left until he rotted. But back in Psalm 16, the prophet David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that his body would not see decay. He said, you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let my body see decay. But we know with confidence that David died and was buried. And the apostle said, and his tomb was still with them to that day. David was a prophet. And he was speaking of the resurrection of Christ that would happen instead of his body decaying by natural means. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, if we have been crucified with Christ, abandoning ourselves to him, suffering disgrace for his name, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Praise Jesus. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Think about that. You die, you're set free from sin. Duh, right? right? So that's the argument here in Romans. One who has died has been set free from sin, okay? Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are here today to see and savor Jesus who became cursed for us. We are confident that because of his death, atoning for or paying for all of our sin, we will not be abandoned in our graves. But though we die, we will surely rise to be together with him forever. Though we deserve the same judgment as Judas, yet he redeemed us and paid our price so that we will be resurrected as he was, not left to be eaten by worms. And that is the hope to which he has called us. Today, he whose voice calls from heaven is commanding us to repent of sin, which no longer has any power over us. He is calling us who are already clothed in his holiness to live holy lives, purifying ourselves as he is pure. Anyone who has that hope in himself purifies himself as he is pure. The first part of holiness 
is brokenness, humility, and the fear of the Lord. The second part of holiness is to love each other as he has loved us. That is the sign of our resurrection to newness of life and of our coming resurrection from the dead. Jesus said, no longer have I called you servants, but I have called you friends. No greater love has anyone than this, but that he laid down his life for his friends. Work that back logically. Nobody has ever loved you like he has loved you in laying down his life for you, making you once his enemy, now his friend. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Amen.